Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, Podcast World. Welcome to the final installment of our New Year's visit to the vault here at FNO InsureTech. I'm Rob Beller, and I am here to tell you that we are going to replay one of our favorite episodes, an episode that really kind of changed a lot for Lee and I about how we look at InsureTech and how we think about the people who work in it. Today, we you're going to hear Jonathan Matus, who is this co, who's the founder and CEO of Zendrive. Jonathan is one of the brightest, most creative executives that we've had the opportunity to interview. He has an amazing resume for somebody who's a very, very young man. And in 2022, later in the year, we are going to have an opportunity to have Jonathan back on the podcast to catch up on Zendrive. But we wanted you to listen to this episode and listen to the amazing thinking uh, and process and work that Jonathan and his team are up to at Zendrive. So uh, without further ado, here is a visit to the vault with Jonathan Matus from Zendrive. Hey, everybody. We are here with our guest today, the CEO and founder of Zendrive, Jonathan Matus. Hi, Jonathan. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Welcome. It's, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Where do we find you guys sheltered? So right now I'm with my family in the Santa Cruz Mountains in, um, in a small mountain house that we have here, enjoying nature. But Beautiful. normally we're in San Francisco. Great. We're thrilled to have you with us today. And you are somebody who's been kind of around the block in the tech world before you ended up in the auto world, if you will, or the driving world. And it's been a very interesting journey. And we want to ask you questions about that as well as a lot of questions about Zendrive. So we'll just jump right in and let's start with Zendrive. And why don't you tell us what Zendrive is and what it is that you guys do? Yeah, sure. First of all, Zendrive is a mission-driven company. And our mission is to make roads safe using data and analytics. We've been around for about seven years now. We're a small group of roughly 100 people around the globe, but mostly in Asia and here in California. Our technology is used by insurance companies, by fleets, by telcos, by car makers, by consumer applications. And generally, it allows our partners to understand driving behavior and to build solutions and applications around insights that we produce from sensor data, whether it's smartphone sensor data or connected car or OBD or a variety of other sources. To date, we've analyzed roughly 200 billion miles and we are the world's largest driving analytics platform. My goodness, that's quite a statement there because driving analytics has become an enormous area of focus. I think a lot of people are interested in understanding driving. This is coming from the angle of understanding risk. If you think about insurers or fleets, this is coming from the angle of uh, peace of mind. If you think about families and uh, commuters, 
This is coming from the angle of planning and security. If you think about set cities and uh, municipalities, it's really different angles for using this data. And when my co-founder and I, Pankaj, started a company about seven years ago, one of the key insights we had, which now I believe seems obvious, but at the time seemed perhaps counterintuitive, and that insight was that every car on the road has a smartphone, and that smartphone sensors can do a lot of the things and sometimes do things that hardware, black boxes, OBD, connected car type technology cannot do or can do at a very small scale. So we asked ourselves, what if we could build a technology that's useful enough that it will become popular and it will be used in a variety of different contexts and we can unlock this very large data set and answer all of these questions about driving behavior. That's, that's, uh, that's how we got to where we are. Yeah, I'm, you guys were pretty early. I mean, 2013 even though in the grand scheme of the world isn't that long ago, in the world of telematics and coming from it from an insurance side like we are, that makes you guys uh, very, very early in. Do, do, when, when you started and you, and you started going out, and, and we'll focus on the insurance vertical, and you started talking to carriers, what kind of reception did you get? I'm sure that for, for some carriers you spoke to, you might have been the first people to talk to them about telematics. So many carriers heard of telematics. Uh, it was that thing that Progressive did. <laughs> um, Progressive, uh, for those of our listeners who are, are, are not familiar, one of the top carriers in the U.S., and they invested and invented something called Snapshot, which is hardware-based driving analytics um, or telematics. Their system was pretty straightforward. They would send you something to plug into the OBD port in your car and collect two or three weeks of driving behavior. And then based on that, give you a price that potentially was better than other prices in the market. Following Progressive, who is considered by many to be a leader in the market, a bunch of insurance companies decided that they need to have a strategy for telematics, but that's kind of where they left it at. And, yeah. <laughs> and so you would see companies that have the intention or have a, have a presentation or have someone with a title that says head of telematics, but didn't really have the ability to execute, whether it's IT or operations or marketing, customer support, to really be successful. The early days in telematics, when we were talking to insurance companies, most of the conversations were more to fill the curiosity of those executives that are responsible for telematics, but don't really have the tools to execute, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think we learned a lot and we, we taught them a thing or two about what's possible to do with, uh, with mobile telematics. But it really took a little while for more operators in the U.S. and globally to understand that actually not using telematics now is a controversial perspective. And, right. And then it's, there's right. severe adverse selection. So ZenDrive is a application that can be the underlying of a carrier's app. Is that right? You would come in, you would do all the all the hard work, but they could they could white label it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. You know, ZenDrive doesn't need to be in the in the spotlight. As a matter of fact, we don't really talk about our customers publicly. A lot of them are very proud about their brand and they want to be in the front and center. Uh, ZenDrive was built, the, the tools, the product, the solutions we built were designed to be in kind of the back office under the hood. 
whether it's by designing things to be a developer platform or by white labeling solutions um, or just partnering deeply and helping our customers build their own. So we do all of those things. And generally, I think that in the insurance world, every insurance company has both the pride and oftentimes the know-how, whether it's a special data set or experience or user base that they understand really well. And they don't want to lose that. Right? They, want to, they want to customize. They want to make sure that everything is done based on their own operations, their own best practices. And so we've learned a lot doing that over the years. We're going to change the direction here for a second, because one of the interesting things about when we have somebody like yourself on, you have such an interesting story and background. We want to take a couple of minutes to, to kind of cover that and ask you about it. And I'm going to have you go back to your youth. I mean, it's funny. I say go back to your youth. You're, you look like you're like 15 years old now. So, <laughs> so Thank you, you know, <laughs> like a year and a half ago when you were a kid. But, but seriously, you were born here, grew up in Israel. Is that correct? That's right. So I was born in Syracuse, New York. Upper State New York, and um, my mother was a graduate student there. And um, when she graduated, my parents moved back to Israel. So I grew up in Tel Aviv, and then uh, following my military service, I came here to the States to, to study and started my college and then, and then career in Silicon Valley. And then you quickly moved on. I'm, I'm assuming that tech, you were interested in tech early on, and you ended up in a, in a really interesting situation at Google, isn't that right? That's right. Uh, so actually, I think the theme in my career progression throughout has been more luck than anything else. So I, I came here to the States and with a pretty interdisciplinary interest, studied uh, physics and philosophy and artificial intelligence at Boston University and then transferred into Harvard and specialized even more in artificial intelligence there. And it was obvious to me in my college career, and I'm going to be a professor. But the summer of my junior year, I decided to depart from my habit to that and go to San Francisco and take an internship with the Boston Consulting Group. Until mm -hmm. then, all of my summers were in research labs. And I don't know what led me to do it, but I fell in love with San Francisco and the Bay Area and the energy and the innovation here. And I also realized that the business world was actually quite interesting. And I told myself, you know what, let's just do that for a few years and then go back to academia. And then Google came and interviewed at Harvard. And, and I realized that's a great way to go to San Francisco. <laughs> that, was, that was already like pure luck. But then when, <laughs> when I joined Google, this was 2006, you know, they had all sorts of different entry-level positions. Um, I decided to, you know, not take the pure technical route and be an engineer or or, or, or anything of that sort. And I took the more business route and, and became a product marketing manager. And they put me on a very small, insignificant experiment that they had at the time. It was something they thought maybe of launching. Uh, they acquired a very small team led by a brilliant engineer named Andy Rubin. That team was called Android. It was, uh, <laughs> it was less than 20 people at the time of the acquisition. And when I joined, I was employed 25 on the team. Wow. And that was super early days, about a year and a half before the launch, before the iPhone launch, before anyone knew that smartphones are going to be big. And uh, I totally won the lottery and got a front row seat <laughs> to <laughs> some of the, the, the most exciting days in the, in the mobile industry and really learned a lot. Why do you say it was some of the most exciting days? Because 
Did you guys kind of know that this was going to take over the world, so to speak? Why was it so exciting? I think it was exciting because we didn't know it was going to take over the world, and it did. Um, it was exciting because, you know, Andy is a visionary. He had a very, very expansive and ambitious view. And the team that he built and, and brought with him was excellent. But but still, it was very much a risky bet. And it wasn't clear that people want smartphones and that they'll be willing to pay for them or that the product we built was good or that the strategy of taking it to market was correct. There were so many unknowns. And the other thing that happened was that the iPhone... And, and Steve Jobs uh, beat us to the punch. They released before Android. Mm-hmm. So we were on the reactive for for the first uh, few quarters. Right. So it was just, um, you know, high octane, high pace, very, very aggressive business and technology environment with the founders of Google personally involved in many of the decisions and the meetings. So as a very junior person coming out of college, it was a very unusual environment and one that uh, I was tossed into both having a lot of responsibility, but more more importantly, just working with brilliant people and, and learning a lot. What an amazing opportunity. I mean, you were a kid, even though I know you did your military service first. You were a little bit older, but still ba- basically your first job, right? That's right. That's right. I, I'm so fortunate for the opportunity they've given me and... You know, that wasn't, of course, as you'd imagine, when, when you have this hyper growth, they just need bodies and they need talented people to, to do stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, and before it was clear to the world how successful Android is, even before it was clear inside Google how successful it's going to be, we already saw explosive growth. So I found myself, after a few years, sent to Tokyo and I was stationed in Japan running Asia Pacific for Android after about three years of, of doing my job in, in Mountain View. So yet again, a very unusual circumstance, but um, you know, Asia was growing quickly. We had Samsung and LG and Docomo and KDDI and India was starting to open up to smartphones. There was just a lot of really difficult go-to-market and and marketing problems needed to be solved, and, and so they they sent the first you know the first product marketer from from Android to go and and figure it out, and that was a really interesting time as well. So I spent a year in Tokyo, um, traveled all over Asia, and both made some good friends and learned a thing or two about how business is done in different parts of the world. I want to keep progressing through your career, but I want to take one quick pause to ask you about Israel. And uh, this is just an interest of mine. You're now the fourth or fifth Israeli that we've had on the show. All leaders in their companies or in their segment that they're working in. Do you think that that's a coincidence? Is there something about the Israeli culture that nurtures people like yourself or pushes people like yourself? I mean, do you think there's a connection between being an Israeli and ending up being a leader in the tech area in this high octane area? The numbers seem to indicate that there is some correlation. Um, it's it's really difficult to go to the root cause because different founders have different reasons, different backgrounds, different companies have different circumstances. So pretty sure that whatever generality I will point to would be very easy to uh, to point to poke some holes in. Having said that, in Israel there's a combination 
of several elements that I believe help create a culture that encourages risk-taking and entrepreneurship. The first one is the concept of, uh, of, of chutzpah, which is uh, common also, I think, to uh, American Jewish folks and you know, those not familiar with is kind of having the guts or the, the balls, pardon my French, to, to do things that are unlikely to be successful or, or to take risk and to, and to disregard cultural and social norms. The second is that Israel is a country that shifted from socialism to democracy and to capitalism. And so we know what, it, what it's like when you need to stand in line to, you know, to get your free medical service, but to stand in line for a few hours. And we also know what it means to cut the line and get first in, uh, into whatever it is that you, you need to do. So we have a, we have a, a healthy disrespect for, uh, for rules and regulation, which is also important for, for challenging norms and for entrepreneurs. The third and the fourth aspects are more demographic. So the, the third one is the military service, which is a melting pot of ideas and cultures inside Israel, but it's also the largest industrial and, and sort of corporation that exists in Israel and gives a ton of individuals very technical education very early on. And the fourth one is that in the 90s, there was a huge wave of highly technical, highly educated Russian immigrants that came to Israel. About 20% of Israeli population arrived during a span of a few years. Mm-hmm. There were professors and engineers and doctors, and there wasn't enough jobs for these people. And mm-hmm. so for a few years, you had these overqualified, brilliant people working in janitorial jobs or, or you know, sales jobs or whatever it is that they could do to feed their, feed their families. But then when they, they picked up the language, they started taking technical jobs and starting companies and provided, uh, you know, an injection of technical talent that Interesting. generated basically an age of, of, of startups and, and, and technical opportunities. And so all that kind of energy was a wave that you rode on as well, so to speak. When you're when you a, a, a cork floating in the ocean, you have no idea that where the waves are, are going. You're just filling up and down. So, you know, maybe the stuff that I'm talking about when, you know, when I refer to luck, maybe a little bit of it came also through the environment that I was in. Uh-huh. Perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps a 21-year-old in, in the U.S. wouldn't consider going to a different country for his college education or... You know, someone after three years in his first job wouldn't consider going to Tokyo. Right. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that describes any of the choices that other brilliant Israeli uh, entrepreneurs, you know, you know, talk to uh, Asaf uh, from, from Hippo or, you know, you talk to Noam from Waze or, you know, everyone's got a different story. Back to your career uh, quickly. You decide to leave Google or you're recruited out of Google, or like you said, it's always luck. Uh, and you end up at Facebook. And I think this was about the time that, that Facebook was uh, or making the announcement that, that they're going to be a mobile first company. Is, isn't that right? Yeah, actually, that's the context for which they hired me. So this was about two years prior to the, the IPO. And um, Zach was already convinced that Facebook has one big vulnerability that he needs to patch for the IPO and that is mobile. And so mm-hmm. he wrote in some people from Apple and from Android and HTC and a variety of other kind of mobile first companies and put us in charge of a variety of different efforts. And 
I was responsible for a mobile platform. So everything that developers and partners in the mobile space are doing. That was also fascinating. Just like the culture difference between Google and Facebook was very, very big at the time. Google was more academic, more risk averse, uh, more attracted to big problems because they're big and to beautiful solutions because they are interesting and intellectually satisfying. And Facebook was all about moving quickly and getting shit done and this kind of uh, startup mentality, hacking, doing hackathons and Interesting. breaking shit. And it was fun. It was, it was, for me, it was really a great preview for the kind of cultural shift you need in order to be successful as a startup. Because speed is everything for a company that knows right from, from the minute they get the check from an investor that in 18 months they'll need to go back for money again. You got to do a lot of stuff in 18 months. So <laughs> better move quickly. I'll ask you just one more question in this line, and that is you're at Facebook for a couple of years. Obviously, everything went well for Facebook. What inspires you? Are you driving along one day in your car and you think to yourself, hey, wow, or what in the world happened that took you from a social media platform helping them with their, their mobile idea into Zendrive? That's a great question. So to some part, this was driven by how dumb I was and how long it took me to <laughs> understand that I'm a part of the advertising industry. I mean, it's shocking. It's like, what, six or seven years it took me to understand that there's cool gadgets I'm building and, you know, getting people connected, whether it's with Android or with Facebook mobile. At the end of the day, a job well done was getting people to spend more time on that little screen and to click on more ads. And it's, it's almost shocking how both Facebook and Google, and I think other companies of that scale, separate the business into the side of the business that's making money, right? They're building the ads technology, they're doing the sales and the marketing to agencies and to advertisers. And the other side of the business, which is building engaging products. And they're like, at least at the time when I was there, they weren't really talking to one another much. They were almost like two separate companies, different buildings, different metrics, different teams. And, you know, I was so in love with my job and Android and, and Facebook that I didn't really care that much or, 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 or care to lift my head out of my, my laptop and ask, wait, hold on a second. Like, what's the overall company business model? What am I doing here? And when I realized I'm a part of, of the advertising world, I took a pause and asked myself, is this really what I want to do? I, I felt and I still feel that there's too many brilliant people and too many well-funded companies that are chasing this problem of getting consumers to spend more money. And I just, it, it didn't feel like my calling. And so that led to a period of introspection and trying to think about what are the problems that I actually want to work on? What are some challenges that really move me that I connect with? And that, you know, incidentally, or one way or another, I also have a skill set or, or experience that's, you know, that's useful. You know, perhaps there's more romantic stories about how companies are founded. For me, it was literally like, sitting down and writing this up and trying to do a kind of a top-down analysis of both which areas are big societal problems. It was really clear to me that I want to work on something where even if there's no revenue, no, no money to be made, that I will have a positive social impact. So that was one criteria. The second criteria was that there's a big business opportunity and uh, ideally an area where there's little 
little competition where the incumbents are not as tech savvy as uh, you know online advertisers. And the third criteria was an area where my experience and the technology that I understand pretty well, namely mobile, can actually have an edge. And so you know looking through these lenses, I gravitated very clearly to road safety. And um, the fact that I'm coming from Israel, you know, this might also be an observation you, you probably made. The fact that I came from Israel put me in a, in a camp of, of founders that are trying to, Israeli founders that are trying to solve problems related to transportation. There's just a huge amount of companies that came out of Israel or based in Israel, you know, whether it's Mobileye with its $15 billion acquisition or Waze with Google right. or uh, MoveIt or you know, a huge GM tech center. There's just a ton of really interesting companies in transportation in Israel. And that's probably because, again, <laughs> Israelis are aggressive and some would say terrible drivers. And Israelis <laughs> like create to, you know, to, to come up with creative solutions for problems that they're facing day in and day out. So it's top of mind. And the tragedy in Israel, but it's a tragedy around the world, is that more young people die on the roads than in all of our military conflicts combined. And Israel has had its fair share of military conflicts. And so it's a grim statistic and one that was top of mind for me and really helped me look in and, and focus on that problem. I'm sitting here reading your your background and I mean you have uh, you have training in philosophy, neuroscience, strategy for business, product marketing. I mean you are it's not like you got education in English literature and then found your way into here. Like you have built from the ground to really be successful in what you're doing. But yeah, you know, I guess here, here's a question. What is your ultimate mission with Zen Drive? Like what is your ultimate goal? Yeah. So, so first of all, uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm usually flattered. And uh, <laughs> I think there's also an alternative explanation for the same behavior that's impressing you. There's a, I'm a decent storyteller, but I'll take a compliment. ZenDrive is indeed So ZenDrive is a mission-driven company, and the mission is to make roads safe. That's a pretty big mission, and so we further qualify it. That we want to make it safe by using data and analytics, right? because you can go and make roads safe by making a better seatbelt or a safer car or building an autonomous vehicle and removing the driver altogether. You know, these are all great things, but you know, for a startup, you gotta you gotta pick your battles. So the definition for us is using data analytics. I believe that the problem of fatalities on the road, which is you know 1.3, 1.4 million people that die every year on the road, right? So if if you look at the biggest estimates of of how many people will die this year from coronavirus and look at the impact of that tragedy on our economy and on our freedoms and on our health, right? It's it's absolutely a terrible situation what's happening with corona right now. There's a, an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude more people that are on the road and right. as a society would seem to just be okay with that. Right. And so I'm not okay with that. And I think that as someone who had a first-hand experience, some would say, responsibility in getting the mobile devices to be so addictive and so... Distracting. Exactly. I I partially feel some responsibility for 
the uptick in fatalities on the road. Right? People are distracted on the road. It's a it's a real real problem. Yeah, I saw yeah. somewhere on on your website where you have a, a a paper about distracted driving is the new drunk driving. It's worse actually. Um, and you know, you talk to insurers. And, you know, many of them are scratching their heads. I remember a few years ago, they were scratching their heads and saying, what's changing the world? Why are we seeing the number of crashes and claims and all of these go up? Why? And some say, oh, it's cheap gasoline. And some say, oh, the cars are more expensive, so it's more expensive to fix them. You know, there's more drivers on the road. All of these things are true. The economy is doing well. People are you know, driving here and there. All of these things are true. But really, the thing that's changed in the last decade and you see it, whether it's the bottom line of insurance companies or in the hospitals or just the statistics, is that about a quarter of all crashes are a result of distracted phone use. The biggest part of the strategy is that this disproportionately hits younger populations. So new drivers get on, get on behind the wheels and they are more likely to be in a crash. It's just, it's just something that I think as a society we need to address. And... I'm a huge proponent of autonomous vehicles. We try to help autonomous vehicle companies whenever we can. Okay. But I just don't think it's okay as a society to say, we're just going to wait until Waymo and Uber and all these guys are going to figure it out. We should do something about it right now. And we should do something about it everywhere, not just in markets where you know the conditions are ripe for autonomous vehicles. Right? What about the many, many people that die in Africa and in India? where people can't afford to even put an OBD or a black box in their back box in their car. You need a solution, you need an approach that is designed for ubiquity. And it is designed to work everywhere. And that's why the mobile phone is spot on, right? Because first few years of my career I was involved in getting smartphone into every pocket and every car. And so second part of my career is fixing some of those externalities that those smartphones can deliver. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, you're saying that you were a part of the brain that helped us become addicted to these phones. And now you're using that same understanding of of people's minds and helping us get it to be safe now, uh, which is, which is amazing. And I'm wondering what are the, what are the, the trends showing? What are the statistics showing? We've, you know, since Progressive had launched theirs and, a lot of companies have telematics uh, in vehicles now. Are we seeing a shift to safer driving, or is it still kind of out of control? You know, one of the one of the challenges that we we have as society, or, or we have as humans, is we have certain biases, cognitive biases. There's been some amazing books written about this, but you know, one of those cognitive biases is that we almost always believe, with regards to every every skill you can imagine that we, you know, skills that we use day in and day out, that we're better than average. And it's really pronounced when it comes to driving. So you ask people, you know, how good of a driver you are. And 85, 90% of people say they're much better than average. And so uh, there's a great example of this actually right now happening in the days of COVID where, you know, very few people are driving. And, but, but some people are driving. And because there's fewer drivers on the road, you see more instances of speeding, of distracted phone use, and you see an actual increase on in crashes per mile driven, which is kind of crazy, right? So um, fewer vehicles on the road, but people are just more confident. They say, oh, no one else is there, so I can 
go 100 miles an hour and I can just answer this text right now because no one's here. And, um, and those cognitive biases that we have with regards to driving are, are deadly. So this might seem like a simple question. Are you an, uh, you must be a big advocate of autonomous driving. What are your thoughts on that vis-a-vis your mission? Yes, I'm a huge advocate of autonomous driving. I think that you know, if you could fast forward uh, 20 years from now, where autonomous vehicles could be ubiquitous or, or getting to ubiquity, the world will look very different. So Orion, my two-year-old son, it's questionable whether he will need a driver license or not. Having said that, I think that like many other technology cycles, autonomous vehicles were hyped, perhaps overhyped, and it's not around the corner. I think you go and you talk to people at you know, Uber and Waymo and Cruise, and a lot of them will tell you that some of the initial predictions of when will this technology be safe enough and, and mature enough to, to be deployed amongst humans, and they'll tell you it's going to take longer than anyone imagined. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. So here at Zendrive, we try to do what we can to help autonomous vehicles. And some of them are consumers of anonymized aggregate data that we collect. And I can tell you a little bit about how, how we help autonomous vehicles, if that's interesting. Sure, please. I would love to hear uh, that. Okay, let me, let me double click on that then. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you are... Uh, yeah, let's go to that recording. <laughs> Ready go. <laughs> so if you are a, if you are a fleet that operates autonomous vehicles, then there is effectively three chapters in your life history. The first chapter is building and tuning the technology. The second chapter is the launch of the technology in markets where you just start. And this could be months, this could be years, depending on how, how quickly humans and regulators and and other vehicles get used to you driving amongst them. And the third chapter is where your technology is ubiquitous and you don't have humans on the road anymore, just like you don't have horses on the highways. Correct. A horse is a a valid way to get from San Jose to San Francisco. It will get you there, but it's illegal and it's not practical and it's quite dangerous. So similarly, if you fast forward a few decades, human drivers will be in a similar, similar boat. But the first two phases of the story, right, the, the tuning and then, and then the kind of the alpha launch or the beta launch, those periods are periods where as an autonomous fleet maker, you're very risk averse, right? You're, you're in, in the first chapter, you're trying to learn. In the second chapter, you're trying to prove that you're really safe. And so for you to understand ambient driver behavior is really critical. But if you take a technology that, let's say, was built and trained, in Palo Alto, and you deploy it in Arizona where it's always sunny and the roads are wide and the cars are big and no one is jaywalking and you don't have cows and, you know, and scooters on the road. Um, that's one story. But once you try and take it to, I don't know, the small streets of, of Seville in Spain or, God forbid, to India or to Africa, you have a completely different challenge in your hands. And so understanding how drivers behave and how they should interact with your, you know, magical box, your, your, your autonomous vehicles is really critical. And if you Quite can get that information in as close to real time as possible. So for instance, um, I don't know if any of you lived in LA, but um, I have some friends in LA and they tell me that whenever it rains there, people are 
you know, it, it's a big deal. Yes, it's the wor- it brings out the worst, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you think about how people behave when it rains in LA versus how they behave on the road when it rains in Seattle, you're probably going to see very different behaviors. So these are the type of behaviors and these are the type of things that ZenDrive technology and data can help aggregate and provide autonomous vehicles so that they understand both what the trend is historically and what is happening right now. And from the perspective of the regulator, from the perspective of the consumer, from the perspective of the lawmaker, you also have a really important question, which is, okay, so, you know, this company that's training their cars in Palo Alto wants to launch their their autonomous vehicle here in Spain. And they want to launch it in, you know, in, in uh, Madrid, and they want to launch it in Barcelona, and they want to launch it in Seville. How do I know which of these cities is ready? And how do I know when will that vehicle be at least as safe as the drivers in that city? And so because Zendrive is in the business of scoring drivers, we know for every city, for every geography, for every, you know, every, every neighborhood even, what is the driving pattern, the driving risk scores, the driving uh, behaviors that are typical, and we can help benchmark that to what autonomous vehicles enable. Is that kind of data... Is that kind of data anonymized? Yeah. Yeah, it's anonymized and it's aggregate. So, um, actually, that's probably the important point. So, all the data that Zendrive collects by design is devoid of any information about who the driver is. And that's also a part of how we built our business, and that's really important for us. We're a privacy-first company. So, if you, you know, rip the guts of our technology and you look in there, you'll see that we don't even have the kind of the server capacity or the, the tools to hold some of this personally identifiable information. Uh, we just analyze driving behavior and we assign a random set of, of, uh, of digits to it. And then our customers are the ones that patch it together and build typically the user experience or you know, they hold the relationship with their end user. We're, we're a technology partner for them. So can you provide like the telematic type individual experience for a carrier where they want to know how I'm driving and and what my behavior is? Do you provide that kind of? No, not about you. Uh, But what we could do is we could build a tool for them that they will then hand you and ask for your permission, Mm -hmm. give you a set of features that are useful for you, and you will then provide them with access to this data. And the way ZenDrive is involved in all this is ZenDrive is analyzing this data and turning it into insights that this carrier can then use. So um, let me give you an example. One of our earliest customers is uh, a consumer application called Life360. They are building technology for families, for safety. And they use our technology for detecting crashes in real time and responding to those crashes by letting parents know or loved one know that something has happened and then having someone from a call center reach out and check if the passenger or the driver are okay and if if they're not send an ambulance or alternative means of transportation and you know Zendrive technology was running in the background in the application analyzing driving behavior we had no idea if it's John or Nancy or David that's driving we have no way of knowing it and we don't care the technology is de- just there for the purpose of detecting that the crash has happened 
and then letting Life360 initiate the cascade of service and user experience that they provide their end users. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, and it is so real. In fact, a couple of months ago, I was sitting over in um, in our building and one of my coworkers stood up and left. Come to find out, uh, he had gotten a live 360 alert that his son was in a wreck. Wow. Uh, and then a month later, the same thing happened with somebody else at our company that they said, I have to leave. Somebody was in a wreck. And I had no idea that it was associated here with Zendrive, but it's such a wonderful feature. Uh, and in fact, I wanted to make sure that, that we hit on that wreck detect. Uh, where did that where did that idea come from? Where did, I mean, who came, I, I don't know, where, yeah, where did it come from? I think I came up with the idea, but the, the, the real insight here was when we started building our technology, we knew that we can analyze driving behavior, but detecting crashes seemed like a, a formidable technical challenge. I mean, if you think about it, let's say you're driving your car and you're slamming the brake and then your phone comes flying out of your cup holder. That is very likely to register as a crash, right? It's from a kind of physics sure. and inertia perspective, it's very similar. Sure. And so some of the engineers that, that we we hired were so fortunate. They're, they're just really curious people, just intellectually really, really curious. And so they gravitate to these really difficult problems. And... Um, we uh, we hypothesized that it's possible, but we had to hack our way around it. And one of our earliest investors, BMW, was really kind and helped us test some of our early algorithms. So we literally had, you know, dozens and dozens of phones participate in month-long crash experiments in Germany, where BMW is doing the regular crash you know, experimentation and our smartphones were all over the place, you know, in the, in the pockets and in the, you know, in the, in the cup holders and on the dummies and all that. We were able to build something that works and scale it and tune it. And, you know, this is where the magic, where my co-founder Pankaj is really one of the best people in the world to do this kind of stuff. But he was able to take something that was really rough around the edges, this algorithm, and using the billions of miles that we collected, find a lot of instances of real-world crashes and then retrain the algorithm. And so the more data goes through our system, the more accurate the algorithms become. The faster they react, the lower speed they can react. Um, and so over the last, I want to say, five years, we've really built a pretty formidable crash detection algorithm and a bunch of patents in this. And it's something that we, you know, we're doing with a bunch of companies like Verizon and GM and a few other large uh, folks that I can't talk about. I want to talk for a minute about some of the other verticals that you work in, because, I mean, the application in insurance is certainly obvious and um, and belongs. And so, you know, we're an InsurTech podcast, and that's always our focus is on InsurTechs. But I don't think it's really it would be fair to call you, uh, to, to call Zendrive an InsurTech. And, and I think you'd probably agree with that. You're broader than that. Talk for a minute about some of the other verticals that you guys are working in and your ideas there. So putting insurance aside, we, we did a lot of our early work in the fleet side. So we built technology initially that helped ride share companies and 
best mail delivery companies. And it was just a really good fit because we all seem to sit here in Silicon Valley, but also because they were the first to bring mobile into transportation at a big scale, right? So every driver that works for Uber and Lyft and, you know, what is it called? Uh, DoorDash and, you know, Caviar and all these different companies, Instacart, they all run some sort of a driver app tells them where to pick up and where to drop off. And something tells them more than that. Mm-hmm. And so our technology could be embedded inside those driver applications and help prevent crashes, help react to unsafe driving, and help reduce insurance premiums. That's an area we started with and we built a bunch of pretty powerful technology there. And you know we've been working with a variety of different companies and now scaled up to very large traditional fleets like Domino's pizzas of the world and, and others. And the technology has also been picked up by like a, a really fascinating long tail of, of fleets. Like uh, the Uber of Kenya is, um, is a company that uses motorcycles to pick up drivers and passengers. Sure, so, sure. You know, they, 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 of course, needed something that will work. They couldn't put a black box on those motorcycles. So they use our technology and it turns out it works. Mm-hmm. So that was one group of, of uh, customers that we, we started with and started working with. The other set of customers are customers that are united by their focus on the use case around crash detection. Right? So some of them are consumer applications. I mentioned a couple of them already. Um, some of them are kind of an intersection of, uh, of insurance, but we also work with large telco companies and with comics. The thing that they found each one in their own industry is that while everyone believes that they are better drivers than average, everyone also believes that their spouse or their teenage kid is worse than average. That's right. <laughs> and and you, you, you can probably that empathize so with true. that. Um, and the, the result of that is that, you know, and, and this is not just a, a cynical statement, you know, people care about their loved ones and they don't want to see them in a crash and they want to have peace of mind. And so there's willingness to, to both pay and to, uh, to use technology to, to create that peace of mind. So we're, we're partnering with a lot of folks in that space. I would say, you know, between insurance fleets and kind of family safety, which comes again from the automotive or telco or the consumer app angle, it covers most or maybe 85 or 90% of our customers. I'm very interested in driver reveal. Where is that used? Again, that's that's the core of the technology that's used both for fleets, for insurance companies, and for the family use case. So it's the core driving behavior. You know, again, imagine you have a teenage son or daughter and you're giving them the car. You care a lot about making sure they get to their destination safe. And if you have um, the ability to say something about it, you would also want to let them know um, not to be distracted on their phone, for instance. Or if you are a Domino's Pizza fleet manager in uh, in the UK, and you have a fleet of you know two thousand drivers that you need to manage, you want to make sure that you know who's going to get there on time and who's driving safely and who's going to likely incur claims for you. Jonathan, I want to ask you about claims because we're in the claims business and that's kind of what interests us on a daily basis. Uh, talk to us about Zen Drive and claims. We've been helping insurance companies with claims technology for a little while now. And really the philosophy behind it is that claims is, and pardon my pun, is when the rubber hit the road, 
Um, it's the time when dollars exchange ends. It's the time where speed and the time where access to data is absolutely super crucial. And so, and it's oh, sorry, and it's also the time when insurance companies and consumers interact um, more than they do in any other part of the life cycle except for customer acquisition. Sure. And so you have you have this like really special set of opportunities and challenges that erupt for it. And um, and at Zendrive, we try to help our insurance partners inform their decision, make decisions more quickly, and uh, and delight the customers. A soft wand says that claims is claims is the money time. Yes, it is correct. Money time is a better metaphor than <laughs> rubber hit the road. But yes, it is, it is the time when when the, the magic happens or the, the horror happens. And you want to make sure that you create magic. Correct. So how are you guys involved in that? How can you help create the magic? So the first thing we do is we help the auto insurance companies know that an incident has happened. Mm-hmm. And it, it, seems, it seems pretty trivial, but you know it is shocking how... Most claims are started days, sometimes week after the incident actually happened. Just knowing that something occurred in real time allows to kick into gear the whole process of collecting testimonials, of collecting the data, of accelerating the process to actually getting a check to the customer. And those are really, really important. Mm-hmm. The flip of that is also quite important because Zendrive technology can detect crashes can detect that an incident has happened. Sometimes there are claims that are fraudulent where when a fraudster is pretending that there was an incident, but there wasn't an incident. And so the technology can help address that because it would detect an incident if such an incident occurred. And so it allows insurers both to be at service of their insureds and to be at service of their financial shareholders and make sure that they're not prey to fraudulent behavior. So on a, on a practical basis, somebody could damage their car on a fraud level, but there would be no data to back it up. Is that kind of how it would work? Exactly. So, you know, we've seen all sorts of different types of fraud, but, you know, one category would be individuals that just fabricate an event that didn't happen. So, you know, they might need the claims money for some reason. And they just basically create damage using a a hammer or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. Um, The other pretty common one is inflating claims, right? Mm -hmm. So there was an incident, but based on the data that Zendrive collects and analyzes, you can tell that that incident was a minor incident. Yet when the claim is made a few weeks after that, the claim is inflated and it's a total loss, right? So you have this case where someone says, you know, I I got this you know, bumper scratch here, but I want this to go past my my deductible or I want to replace a car and they go and they do a, a damage job on the vehicle. And so like those things happen as well. So the, the sensor in the phone can actually somehow detect the, the severity? Yeah, so the sensors on the phone, by themselves, they don't detect anything, but the sensors on the phone together with the machine learning models that we build can differentiate mm-hmm. between incidents that are likely to be minor and incidents that are likely to be very major. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of additional data that goes in there. But I'll give you an example. If there's a minor incident and the, you know, the consumer continues 
then afterwards to go to to work and doing their normal normal day-to-day patterns mm. um, that's also a pretty important signal in the adjudication right because if, sure. if this was sure. an event that then ended in getting to a hospital or even just going to a car shop that's also pretty pertinent data about how big of an issue it was so there's a combination of sensor data but also you know understanding the story of what happened based on uh, the data that we analyzed. So if I'm, if I'm an insured and I have a relationship with a Progressive or a Geico or Allstate or anyone else, and I'm in a crash, um, that's a time where, where I expect my carrier to care for me and to help me financially and otherwise. And so the existence of crash detection and first notice of loss is actually an opportunity to delight the end user, right? So imagine you're in a crash and shortly after that you get a phone call from someone associated with your insurance carrier, but their first question to you is, are you okay and do you need help? Can we send you an ambulance? Can we, uh, you know, if you're okay, can we get you an Uber to get you to your destination on time? Do you need the car to be taken care of? Uh, can we start the, the the temporary car rental process for you while, while our mechanics are fixing the problem? Um, and, and, you know, it's pretty amazing how much goodwill you can create in that special moment and all of it, it depends on knowing in real time that something has happened and Sundress technology is the best in the world in doing that. that that's very interesting because um, as, as we were talking, um, claims are the money time and if they go poorly, it's the opposite of what, of what you're describing. That's right. Right. If they, that, that becomes the opportunity for somebody to go shopping. That's right. That's often the, you know, the, the impetus for people to go shopping. Um, I think the other, Mm -hmm. the other important aspect of kind of knowing that something started is that, or that the claim is, is to be initiated is that insurers for the most part have these large deals that they negotiate with a network of mechanics, right? So it could be DRP. Exactly. It could be it could be on the actual books of the insurance companies or partnerships, but the cost of having the car sit in a garage or in the wrong mechanic or in the scrapyard and just sit there and, and basically charge the insurer rent before the insurer even knows that something has happened is is still the insurer's liability and insurer's responsibility to cover. And so if you can make this real-time adjustments of, okay, something happened, let's make sure we get you to the right mechanic where your cost is going to be lower, but also importantly, we already have a volume deal and we can get you fixed quickly and at the cheapest price. It's just good business. And so mm-hmm. you know, outside of delighting the insured, it's also improving the bottom line for the insurance carrier. So your product really has all kinds of relevance for the, on, on the claim side. It does. It does. And, um, and I think like, it's, it's exciting to see that there's actually a lot more to do. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a, a Chinese carrier of all, um, of all uh, insurance companies, and uh, I was very impressed with what's happening in China. In China, they, they do everything that I described, and on top of it, they're also using uh, machine vision in real time to assess the severity of the of the claim and to basically provide the the driver or the passenger with an immediate, you know, here's here's the check that we can pay you kind of right now, or here's what you can expect in your claim once you drop the car into into, into the mechanic. I think that's a really delightful experience. It's pretty inspiring. Right. And I would assume that this can lead to all kinds of additional automation 
um, opportunities that could end up saving the carrier money. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can on a process can, level. Exactly. Like from a triage perspective, there's probably 80% of crashes that, you know, combining technology that, that Zendrive built and some business automation, uh, you can, with pretty high level of confidence, remove the humans from the loop and then keep the humans working on the 20% of the remainders, the things that are likely to be, you know, very expensive to fix or instances where someone is really injured and, and uh, you know, any moment or human touch is really important. So there's, there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot more that can be done in planes and we're, we're excited to partner with forward-leaning insurers on that. Sure. Kind of like you're saying, I mean, I could see an AI tool, not that I have, you know, any authority or <laughs> background in this, but an AI tool kind of taking over with the insured and walking them through the process and, and helping them through the process. Yes. And, you know, if there is um, something that companies like, uh, like Lemonade has, has proven is that there is a whole cohort of consumers, you know, the millennials, the younger, young consumers that actually prefer to talk to a bot or to not have a human involved. And, and you know, they, they're just not appreciative of talking to someone on the phone if they can just swipe and, and click on their phone. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably starting with them, but increasingly people are either open or excited about having some of these more automated experiences. What, what One of the interesting um, learnings that... Um, I think is happening now is that many, many, many um, demographic groups are comfortable in in having a bot, particularly on the basics. Uh, I was on a call recently with a major insurer who's one of our customers on the property claims side, and they were saying that how surprising it's been across all demographic groups, the willingness of the insureds to be more involved in their claim mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. right? Providing data, providing pictures, what, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. And, uh, and, and the willingness and the comfort in dealing with the technology and dealing with their phones as the primary method to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you as time goes on, I think that on the auto side, there's just more and more opportunities that, that you guys obviously are kind of sit in the middle of. I, I completely agree. Completely agree. And, uh, you know, let's, let's pay attention to the trend and see in two, three years where it's heading. I suspect that these days what's happening with, with COVID-19 is, uh, is putting pressure on a lot of insurance carriers from the pure operation side to think of, of more efficient ways to, to handle claims and to handle customer support tickets. Um, if only because the claims, the, the, the call centers are, are, are not operatable, right? So like if you need to have these people, the claims adjudicators and so on work from home, you're probably more open to trying new technologies that allow them to work more efficiently. So it's possible that right. this will lead a wave of innovation in that space. Right. I, I was listening to a webinar the other day with several chief claim officers on it. And one of the things that uh, uh, one of them said was COVID-19 hasn't changed our digital strategy at all, but it has sped it up tremendously. You know, obviously you guys sit right in the middle of that. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> let's see, let's see where it's taking us. I think it's still in the making as, uh, as we're all observing what's going on. And, um, you know, hopefully there's going to be some positive outcomes to this, uh, 
pandemic and, and the tragedy that follows. Cars are increasingly technologically advanced in this day and age. Does your product work with any of the uh, tools or sensors inside of the car? Yes, we have some deep partnership with some players in the space. Look, the, the thing that's really powerful about the smartphone is that it it follows you no matter which car you're in, and um, and therefore it's available and accessible to anyone, no matter you know how new their car is and whether they activated these premium features and so on. And so as kind of the base of the pyramid, the smartphone is the right tool for uh, for making this technology available to everyone. That's why we started with it. But we do have partnerships with some um, car makers and some modern fleets that have um, access to deep connected car data, either through OBD or Canvas or other ways. And we're doing some interesting things there. Um, you know, whether... Whether that becomes a more important part of a business or not, I think is um, is still TBD because so mm-hmm. far I don't think there is a single player in the market that aggregates sufficient connected car data or make, makes it accessible such that these features can just be turned on and work no matter what vehicle the insured is driving. And that's really important mm-hmm. for car maker. Sorry, for... <laughs> insurance carriers. And so I think until that happens, pretty much every insurance carrier would prefer to have a technology that works for everyone and can give them and their claims and their actuaries and you know, all the different parts of the business that can benefit from access to data can give them the same standard of data rather than have a small subset of users that have very good data, but then everyone else have no data at all. But I suspect that you know in the next three to five years, there might be a convergence and uh, an increase in the volume of, of connected car um, data streams that will make this possible at scale. I kind of consider you a marketer, and it sounds like you know product marketing has been a big part of, of your own career journey. Is that what you do at ZenDrive? Is that what you bring? I mean, obviously, you bring a lot of vision and insight into the future. Uh, tell us for a minute about what you do at the company. What I do at the company is evolved, and it's an important aspect of, of every founder CEO. It's, it's quite difficult to retain and maintain the same set of responsibilities as the company grows. I think a really good metaphor for that is, you know, imagine you need to go and carve a path in the jungle. First guy goes with a machete, and then the guy after him goes with a jeep, and then the guy after that comes with, you know, a big tractor, and then... I don't even know what you call those machines that pave the road. And so they're like every step of the way requires its own tool set and its own expertise. And I think good leaders are aware that what got them successful in the first phase of walking around with a machete is not going to be making them successful when they need a tractor. Perhaps the one thing that's common throughout the phase of, of building a company for a founder is the need to fundraise. So part of my job that's never changed is to make sure that we have money to do what we need to do. Another thing that never changes is leadership and setting the strategy. And the last one is recruiting. So making sure that you're you're bringing the right people to the team. But everything else has changed quite a bit, right? So the first few years of ZenDrive, I was much more involved with product, you know, technical, product marketing, um, product management testing, 
you know, UX, all of those things. With time, I was privileged to work with brilliant product managers that are much, much better than I would ever be. And they became our specialized team that focused on that. And I could focus on other things. And I started doing sales. Right? I'm uh, okay with, with explaining people why they should use Endrive. And so I started meeting with insurance executives and telco executives and fleets and so on. But then it was time to bring the real experts and we built an enterprise team and so on and so forth. And so I firmly believe that the role of the CEO should continue to evolve outside of those three things that I mentioned. And now that we're, you know, we're profitable and fundraising is not something that we need to worry about, I find that I have the privilege to think a little longer term into the future. So normal founder or, or startup CEO life cycle is typically focused on one quarter, maybe two, three quarters ahead at most. But when you don't need to focus on that kind of time scale, you can think two, three, four years ahead. And so that's a part of the journey that I'm pretty excited about and just starting now. We, uh, Lee and I have one last question that we have to ask you as we close. And that is iPhone or Android? <laughs> Great question. So, <laughs> for, so here, here's, here's my uh, like absolutely complete honest <laughs> answer. When I started working on Zendrive, it was Android. And then at some point when I was really deep in product development, I was using both because I really felt that I should be testing everything on both platforms. And then, it, then at some point it became a little too difficult and too clunky. And then for, I want to say four or five years, it was iOS mainly, so iPhone. But just six months ago, I got uh, a, an Android device and now it's Android first. And uh, let's see how long this period lasts. Trying to do both. <laughs> Okay, we'll let you off there the you hook. Go. We can push you, you on this one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're also getting along, so let's leave it that way. Listen, we can't thank you enough. Lee That's and I right. are so pleased to be able to speak to somebody who has uh, not only a lot of knowledge and background, but also has vision and kind of an ethical viewpoint as well. And so we've we've loved having you on today. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And, Hope that uh, you guys stay safe throughout the rest of this uh, COVID journey that we're on. And would you come back and visit with us again sometime? Thank you for the kind words. And yeah, I would love to. Absolutely. I enjoy this conversation a lot. I'm happy to join you again. No problem. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Lee, we've done a lot of these episodes, 70 some, and we most everyone with really smart, brilliant people, but I can only say one thing after our interview with Jonathan, and that is, wow. Wow. I was literally speechless through most of that interview. In fact, I don't think I asked but four or five questions. I really enjoyed his stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I'm reading his his, um, his LinkedIn profile and all the information I could find online about him, we got to talk to a really, really smart and humble person today. Absolutely. And it's interesting. He wanted to be a college professor. Yeah. But veered off a little bit. And a, a little. When, when you think about the college professors that you know, they're, mm -hmm. you know, typically brilliant people at the top of their field. And he's certainly one of those guys. 
Well, think of all the time he has to be able to be a college professor and think about whenever he does go back to do that, if he so chooses, all the knowledge that he can impart on the on the youth of the world. I mean, what college would not want him to to come educate their their students? One of the things I really enjoyed that he talked about was how by being involved in a, a, one of the cogs in the very large machine of smartphones coming mm-hmm. about, of course, there were thousands and thousands of people involved in that, but he, and he was one of them, but taking, feeling a responsibility because of that. Yeah. Seeing smartphones, not only for the good that they are, but also for the less than good that they can be for, right. That, or that people can use them and using that as part of his impetus to start Zen drive. Yeah, I mean, he has a passion, and as he said, he has a mission in his company that he feels as though he needs to. Uh, he helped out in in creating this device that now uh, is causing some problems on the road, and he wants to use it for good. And he wants to he wants to write write it, uh, you know, write the track, write the bus. Plus, a great story. I mean, to to hear about what it was like at Google and what it was like at Facebook in those years is really interesting. I mean, everybody wants to hear about that. Yeah, I cannot wait for Insured Tech Connect, and we're going to get him. We're going to go eat breakfast or a nice dinner, and we're going to get to get to visit with him about life, early early life for him. Yeah, yeah, and another Israeli. And yeah. I'll just have you know that Rob Beller tried to spell his name in Hebrew yeah. and failed miserably. Is that fair Miserably, <laughs> miserably. I got one it letter was- right. Yeah. Yeah, you did. You got a good job on that one, but the rest was not so good. Well, thanks. That's just like a dad to say that. It was better. Good good job that you got one out of this five letters. Well, you did better than I did. That's true. However, you didn't spend four years in Hebrew school, so that's (laughs) that's a whole other conversation. In that case, case, you felt miserably. (laughs) Well, I'm going to succeed by saying thank you for joining us. Thank you to Jonathan for and to Zendrive for giving them to us, and to Launch Squad for making it all happen. And we will uh, thank all you for being with us and for joining us and for subscribing and being part of our FNO community. We really do appreciate you. You guys are why we do it. And so with that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. <laughs>